Have you had a good time so far tonight? Is that mic a little hot? Brother Bob, thank you so much for that word. So encouraging, such a blessing, and the word of God is so rich. Amen? Well, I want to say thank you, first of all, to Pastor Charles for for having me here tonight. It is such a joy and a privilege to be here and for you to share your pulpit with me. And I just want to tell you what... Uh, The reputation this church has in our community is such a a good reputation. You are a blessing to our community. And I count it a privilege to serve in a community with so many great, strong churches. But one of the things that marks your church out among many churches in our state is your belief and conviction in the Word of God. Uh, You should be thankful that you have a pastor who leads you and that he stands upon the word and the authority of the scriptures. That we believe that the word of God is, is breathed by God, amen? And it's the authority for life. And a lot of churches right now are straying away from the gospel, they're straying away from the scriptures, and they're trying to adapt to the culture, but you have a church and you have a pastor who stands firmly on the conviction of God's word, and that's a blessing. Um, and, and listen, I just want to put our hands together and thank the Lord for your pastor. And... Um, you said a few things good about me. I need you to come, come to New Beginnings and say those same things over there, all right? Could you do that? Listen, one of the things that I'm, I'm convinced of, and uh, Brother Bob mentioned this a moment ago, I truly believe that we are in a crisis in America. And that the crisis we are, we are in is that we need revival. Uh, we need revival like we've never needed it uh, before. We need to see a spiritual awakening. We need to see a move of God that would move so powerfully through the churches of our nation that it would revive the church of Jesus Christ in such a way that it would create an echo and a reverberation that would move beyond the walls of the church and penetrate the culture around us. We need revival and we need spiritual awakening. I want to bring a message tonight that I have called from ruins to revival because that's what we need. The ruins of our culture and the ruins of what's happening in many of our churches all around the nation. We need God to move in and do for us what only God can do, which is to revive the hearts of the church and the people who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ. A couple of weeks ago, something interesting happened. Um, We were at a restaurant, my wife and I and my son, we had just finished one of his uh, football games and uh, I have two other girls and they were out doing something with school and so we're there at the restaurant and we're enjoying a hamburger there in Gilmer and all of a sudden my wife, uh, who is very quiet by the way, she is not the spotlight type person, she just likes to be behind the scenes, she pushes away from the table, she stands up in the middle of the restaurants and she starts to dance, like she's just doing this number, bouncing back and forth and I turn around and I'm just shocked and I look at her and she is petrified and her face is turning blue. And so she's doing this number, and I did something that only a dumb husband would do. I looked at her and asked the question, are you choking? (laughs) And if she could have had air to say it, she would have said, yes, you moron. And so she's doing this, and so here's what I do. Like, I jump up, and I I turn her around, and I perform the Heimlich maneuver on her, uh, the... the, um, obstacle that was blocking her uh, airways was dislodged and all of a sudden the color returned to the right color and she began to breathe again and and this was a moment of of Christ and I just want to tell you men if you ever want to score brownie points with your wife save her life sometime 
like literally my brother-in-law texted me that night and he says, listen, you're getting an extra Christmas present this year from me. And I responded back and said, well, you're getting your sister. That's what you're getting. <laughs> but the problem in that moment for her is that there was an obstacle that was blocking her airway. There was something that was obstructing her ability to breathe. And you know that if something is obstructing your ability to breathe, that before too long something's going to happen. You're going to die. And what my wife needed in that moment was for someone to step in and do for her what she could not do for herself, which is to dislodge the thing that was obstructing her airway so that she could breathe once again. What she needed was intervention. And I want to tell you tonight, what we need in American, America more than anything is we need an intervention. The American church, by and large, has the obstruction of sin that is blocking the airway of the Holy Spirit. And if we want to know what is wrong with the culture today, that you don't have to look at the culture, just look at the church of Jesus. That the sin of the culture has crept into the church, and because of this, the airway of the breath of God, the Spirit of God is being obstructed in what we need. And that's what revival is. Revival is God intervening on our behalf and removing the obstruction so that the Spirit of God might fill us once again. The life of the church, the life of the church is the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Without the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, the church of Jesus is dead. And we need revival. So I'm going to get you to grab your Bibles, if you would, and go to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah 29. This is going to be a very familiar passage. We're going to be here just for a few minutes, and then we're going to go to an earlier uh, chapter in Jeremiah and see the context of this. Jeremiah chapter 29. One of the things we do at New Beginnings is because we believe the Word of God is true, and we get to the place that we're going to preach from, we just make the declaration, the Bible is true. Anybody believe that tonight? All right, so if you're there, say the Bible is true. Jeremiah chapter 29, start reading in verse 10. It says this, it says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to my, uh, my promise and I will bring you back to this place. And then he says in verse 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now, how many of you, by just lifting your hands, would say you have heard that last verse at least once in your life before I just read it? All right, Jeremiah 29, 11, I would say probably America's favorite verse. It has replaced probably John 3, 16. And here's why we love Jeremiah 29, 11, is because for many people, we don't quite understand it. So when we hear passages of scriptures in American evangelicalism that says things like this, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. We love verses like that. We, we love them so much, we'll have artwork at our house that decorates itself. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. We have plaques in our offices, Jeremiah 29 11. If we could get away with it, we would have ashtrays with Jeremiah 29 11. But in the words of the great theologian Indigo Mantoya from The Princess Bride, I do not think it means what you think it means. 
You see, the problem with Jeremiah 29 11, we've got to understand the context, we've got to understand the promise. And most, most of us don't understand the promise. Two things about this passage I think we should understand if we're going to understand the context. Number one, this promise was not given to individuals but to the covenant community. So when he says to the people, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, if we were to translate that into East Texan, it would say, for I know the plans I have for y'all, declares the Lord. It's not a promise for individuals, it's a promise for the covenant community, for the people of God. For I know the plans I have for y'all, for the people of God, declares the Lord. The plans are for his people, not for just individual Number two, the second thing we've got to understand is this promise is not given to people to embrace in times of general suffering, but rather a promise given to people who are being reprimanded because of their sin. They're being disciplined because of their rebellion, and God is showing them in the midst of your rebellion, in the midst of the discipline, in the midst of the judgment you're walking in, I want you to know I have a plan for you. I think it's important that we understand this. So we, when we talk about Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, oftentimes we'll quote that to friends who are going through a difficulty. Hey, you know God has a plan for your life. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm, plans to give you hope in the future. God's going to use this bad, bad situation, this terrible season. He's going to work it all out in your life. And listen, is all of that true? Yes and Amen. Does God use hardships in our life, general suffering to work out his will in our life? Yes, we can hold to that. But Jeremiah 29, 11 isn't talking about that. This is a promise given to a group of people who have lived for years in rebellion, living in disobedience to the word of the Lord, following the gods of the culture, and God is now bringing judgment upon them. And earlier on, he says, he goes, 70 years, you're going to be held captive as prisoners by the enemy. But I want you to know this judgment that I'm bringing into your life, I want you to know as you're going through this season of chastisement, I have plans for you. See, we've got to understand the context because when we understand the context, we'll understand this is where the church in America is today. I want to show you the context, if you would. If you go back to the left, to Jeremiah chapter 7, you'll see the context. There's so many places in Jeremiah we could go and to see the rebellion, but Jeremiah chapter 7 really, um, in a very concise way, shows us the message that Jeremiah has been preaching to them that has led them to this place of judgment in Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 27 uh, says this, verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Now listen to verse 2. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house. Everybody say, Lord's house. And proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Now, pause here just for a second. Imagine if you would on a Sunday morning, you're, you're coming into the services and you walk in your foyer. And, and, and Pastor Charles is not in the worship room. He is in the foyer and he is already preaching the message as you're coming in. That'd be a weird Sunday, would it not? But in essence, this is what's happening. People are coming into the temple, and here's what Jeremiah is told. I want you to stand at the, at the gate. Stand at the entrance, and as they're coming in, you're going to preach this message. Listen to the message. Verse 3. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. 
Do not trust in the deceptive words, uh, the, temple, uh, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner or the fatherless or the widow or shed innocent blood in this place, then I will, and, and do not go after the other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place. And in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Now pause here for a minute. We've got to see the context. Here's the problem. This is the great dilemma for God's people is they were living in rebellion, they were living in sin, they were living in violation to the commands of God, they were following the gods of the culture, and yet they were not coming into the Lord's house, coming into the worship services with a heart of repentance. Rather, they used worship services and the temple as a way of covering up and camouflaging the sin in their life. This is why there's this repeated, repeated phrase. He says, do not say to yourself, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Here's the problem. The false prophets were telling the people, hey, look, you go do what you want to do. Live your best life now. Make whatever decisions you want to make. Live, follow the gods of the, of the culture. But we've got the temple of the Lord here. There is no way God is going to bring judgment because we have the temple. And so week in and week out, God's people are living lives according to their own desires and their own wants and their own will, but then they're coming into the temple as if the temple itself is what this is all about to begin with. They were coming in and they were going through the motions of church with no heart for God. They were going through the practice of their religion with no genuine relationship that moves in their heart toward a place of sanctification and obedient surrender to the will of the Lord in their life. They were coming in week in and week out and doing the ritual, but here is the problem. Here is what Isaiah, Jeremiah is telling the people, and it's the same message you see in Isaiah and other prophets. Here's the problem. God's house was never meant to be a place that we use to cover up our sin. It was supposed to be a place we come in, confess our sin, deal with our sin, and bring a heart of repentance and genuine worship. Worship was never meant to be a cover-up for a life of disobedience. It was meant to be an echo of a life surrendered. And here's the problem. God's people coming to God's house, going through the motions of church, with no real heart for the Lord, no real surrender, living the life that they want to live, coming in week in and week out. Let me ask you this question. What does that sound like? Sounds like the church today. And Jeremiah is saying to the people, God is done with this. He's done with the charade. He's finished with the game. This is not what it's supposed to be, and that's why he's telling them, look, if you, will, if you will surrender to me and you will repent, there's that word we talked about, that repentance, that's what we need. That's the message for the church today. If you'll repent and you'll amend your ways and you'll walk away from the idolatry, then I will let you dwell in this place. So what's the great dilemma? Here's the great dilemma, and this is a massive dilemma if we understand the context and why it matters to us today. What God is saying to his people in this moment is that I'm done playing the game. If you want to live with your feet in the world, 
then my presence is not going to dwell among you. If you want to posture your life like the rest of culture and society and live life on your own terms, then don't think that you're going to come here and all is going to be well. That's why he says, and I will let you dwell in this place. Now, scholars are all over the map about the exact phrase. Here's the point. The point he's saying is this, is that the hand of God would be removed from his people if they don't repent. The wind of God will cease to blow. And we see how bad it is in verse 8. Look what he says in verse 8. He says, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known? And then, now here, watch this, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered. Do you see the deception here? And we have churches all over our nation, and this is the way that the people are living You see, the church of Jesus is not the buildings we come to. It's the people. And most churches, we don't talk about sin anymore. There is no desire for holiness. There is no talk of righteousness. And what we do is we we have church. We live like we want to live, and then we come into God's house, and we think, all is well. I got my church in. I got the religion done. I've got what I needed to do spiritually. Now I can go back and live life on my terms. That is not okay. And listen to what he says here, verse 10. He says, and then come and stand before me in my house, this house, which is called by my name, and say we are delivered only to go on And do, listen to the phrase, all these abominations. Verse 11, it's a sobering question. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in my eyes? Say, what are you talking about? Has my my house become a den of robbers? What is he talking about there? If, If you're a thief, if you're a convict, if you are a person who goes around stealing possessions that don't belong to you in this particular day you needed a good hideout because people would be looking for you right and so what you need is you needed a den to go and hang out in to go and to hide in and so uh, you have a, a group of thieves they would go into a community and plunder the community and they would take the possessions and they would ride off and where would they go they would go to their cave and it was the den of robbers it was the safe place for those who had judgment coming toward them hear what The Lord is asking the people in this moment. Has my house become your hideout? Do you you think that the church is the hideout? Like, if I just go to church and go through the motions and all is well, I can do what I want to do? He says, is that what my house is? This house is called by my name? Now listen to this next phrase, verse 11. He asked that question. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. That's sobering. And it's it's this emphatic statement, I myself. He didn't say, and I've seen it. The Lord says, no, no, and I want you to know, behold, look, eyes right here. 
I, even I have seen it. What has he seen? Their sin, their rebellion, their disregard to the commands of the Lord. So, so look at me, brothers and sisters. Hear me say this. This is a truth that I need and a truth that every person in this room needs. Look, your wife may not see it, but the Lord does. Your husband may not see it, but the Lord does. Your friends may not know, the Lord does. You might be getting away with it when it comes to the church knowing about things that are in your life. Jesus knows. He's saying to the people, you, you're, you think you're getting away with it, but I want you to know that I myself, the Lord, the God of the universe, the one who has called you by his name, I see the sin in your life. That's a sobering thought, is it not? Our spouse may not have no clue. Our kids may have no clue. Our pastor, our friends may have no clue. The Lord has a clue. I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. And here's what he's telling his people in this moment. My hand is going to be removed from you, and my presence is going to be taken away. Now, this is significant. Why is this so significant? It's significant because the distinction between God's people and the rest of the peoples of the earth is the presence of God. You remember Exodus, Exodus 34? The people on the, they just had this moment of rebellion and God tells the people, look, I'm, I'm gonna consume all of you. And what does Moses do? The great spiritual leader, he goes and he intercedes on behalf of the people and says, God, they're your people. You can't kill them. You can't wipe them off the planet. These are your people. You bring them out of uh, bondage just to come out here and destroy them in the wilderness. What are the worlds gonna think? What are the cultures gonna think? What are the civilizations gonna think about you if this is what you do? And what does it say? God relents. God says, okay, I'm not going to destroy the people. Actually, I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to give you a group of angels to protect you along the way. Here's one thing. I'm not going with you. Now, what does Moses say to God in response? Thank you. That's an awesome deal. We get the land. We get a personal bodyguard and the angelic beings, and we get to go and have the land flowing with milk and honey. All is well. No, what does Moses say? If you're not going, we're not going. Why? Because the, the, the whole identity of God's people was not about the land of blessing. It was about the presence of the God Almighty in their midst. It was the glory of God among them. That is what made them distinct. That's what Moses says to the Lord. He says, look, how will anyone know that we're distinct from all the other peoples? Then he asked the question, is it not by your presence? You see, it wasn't the land flowing with milk and honey. It wasn't the protection. It wasn't all of the things that we might think are the blessings, the greatest blessing, and Moses understood this. It was the presence of God. Because the land of promise without the presence of God was not enough. So we can have our buildings we can have our churches, and we can have them filled with people. And we can go through the motions of church, and we can have be debt-free. We can, all the things as Baptists we celebrate and we talk about, but if the presence of God is not among us, then we don't have anything. And it doesn't matter who attends our church if the Holy Spirit of God does not attend our church. He's all that matters. 
And here's what God is saying. I'm going to remove my hand from you, from you, and this is the example. Then, so Jeremiah says, I'm going to show you this. And he takes them down a history lesson. Verse 12 says this. He says, go now to my place that was in Shiloh. So he's wanting them to go on a little road trip. Why do they go to Shiloh? He says, where I made my name dwell at first and see what I did to it because of my people Israel, because of the evil of my people Israel. Here's what Jeremiah says. I want you to do me, do me a favor. I want you to load up the, the local uh, bus and I want you to take a drive down to Shiloh. When you get to Shiloh, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go visit the place that my presence dwelled before. And here's why this is important. is for 400 years, almost 500 years, the tabernacle was erected there in Shiloh. And the manifest presence of God Almighty dwelled there among his people. The power of God was made available and accessible to them. God himself dwelled in their midst for almost 500 years, the power and the presence of God. But because they sinned, that place was in ruins. And when they would take the little bus and get down to Shiloh, here's what they were going to find. They were going to find a place that used to have the presence of God. But no more. The remnant of what used to be. Woe to us when we presume upon the grace of God. To think that just because God did move, that he has to move. He is not obligated. And here's what he says. Look what he says, the application. Verse 13. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. When I called to you, you did not answer. So God has been gracious with them. Amen? Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and your fathers, as I did in Shiloh. Listen to verse 15. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out your kinsmen and all the offspring of Ephraim. God's saying my presence is going to be removed. Now here's the, here's the great news in the room this evening. Sin does not nullify the covenant of God. Anybody thankful for that? You see, the judgment of God on his people in this moment was not that they were losing their relationship. They were still the people of God. They were still the covenant people of God because we have a covenant-keeping God. Anybody thankful for that? The grace and the mercy of God who is, is persistent with us and he's patient with us and he's kind with us. Listen, sin does not nullify the covenant, but it does nullify the covenant blessing. And what is the greatest covenant blessing? Is it not the presence of God in our midst? The power of the Holy Spirit filling us? You're still the people of God. You just don't have the presence of God. You see, they were living with this false hope that if they just go through the motions of religion, they can continue to live backslidden lives. No holiness, no passion for God's presence, no genuine love, no pursuit of him, no obedience, just lip service. And God is saying, I've had enough. My 
presence will be withdrawn. And brothers and sisters, I want you to hear me say this. This is God's word for his people under the old covenant. The old covenant. The old covenant that was insufficient. The old covenant that was ratified by the blood of bulls and goats and rams. The old covenant that required a continual, ongoing sacrifice because one sacrifice wasn't sufficient. It had to continue to be offered over and over again. The old covenant that could not erase the conscience of sin and the power of sin in the lives of God's people. The old covenant that allowed the people to have access to God but not to be filled with his Holy Spirit. Now here's the question I have for us. If this is the way that God deals with his people under the old covenant that was insufficient, how much more under the new covenant should we pursue holiness and righteousness? How much more expectation are there on us who have been bought? Listen, the new covenant has been ratified not with the blood of bulls or goats or rams, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. God himself put on flesh, dwelled among us. He died the death we deserve to die. He resurrected on the third day. He has now promised us that if we place our faith and trust in him, not only could we be forgiven of our sin, but we would be filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit. The very presence of God that filled the temple in Jeremiah's day is the same presence that wants to dwell the hearts of those under the new covenant. And if that's the blessing under the new covenant, how much higher are the expectation? And greater responsibility do we have to pursue holiness? You see, what the, the American church, and I'll just go and go further, and I'll just meddle for a minute, the Baptist church, one of the grave mistakes that we have made is that we have settled for the sealing of the Holy Spirit. And I'm thankful for the sealing of the Holy Spirit, amen? That the day that I gave my life to Jesus Christ, I was sealed with the presence of the Holy Spirit unto the day of redemption. But there is so much more to the Holy Spirit than the sealing of the Holy Spirit. The purpose of the Christian life is the Spirit-filled life. And what we need in our, our churches today is, is not, it's not more ministry and more activity. We need more presence. We need the filling of the Holy Spirit. We need the power of God. And that's the problem. You see, what kills the church in America, and by the way, churches are shutting down at such a rapid pace. We can't plant enough churches as Southern Baptists to keep up with the death rate of churches. And oh, by the way, most churches are dead before they close the doors. The question we've got to ask is, what causes it? Why are there so many churches that are dead or dying? And I'll just tell you a very simple answer. We can do all the surveys and all the research, do all the studies, and talk about this program, that program, this minister, that minister, this preaching style, this music style, and all of that. None of that matters. I'm going to tell you why churches die. It's the same reason churches live. The presence of God. If there is a church 
that is alive and it's vibrant and people are coming to faith in Christ and there is a a sense of God's nearness and there is a, a power in that church. It is because the Holy Spirit of God attends that church and there is no explanation for what's happening supernaturally because the preacher can't do it, a musician can't do it, a ministry can't do it. Only the power and the presence of God can give life to a church. And if that's true, a dead church, we can replace the pastor. You can change your music style. You can get the new program. And guess what? A dead church is a dead church. I've been to a lot of funerals in my day. And no matter how much makeup you put on the body, dead is dead. And this is why the church in America needs a fresh move of God and a fresh move of the Holy Spirit. And 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 I'll say this, and I want you to hear my heart when I say this. America doesn't need revival. The church in America needs revival. What America needs is a spiritual awakening. But a spiritual awakening is a byproduct of a church revived. You see, when a church gets a spark of revival when the breath of God breathes fresh wind and fresh fire into a congregation. It begins to surface sin and God begins to call to repentance and then there's there's brokenness and there's, there's worship and the Holy Spirit comes and visits that place in a way that no one gets the credit, no one gets the glory except the presence of Jesus. And when that happens, all of a sudden a church on fire becomes dangerous in the culture. See, a spiritual awakening is a byproduct. See, when the culture sees a church that's revived, the culture gets curious and says, I want some of that. That's what we need. I love how Charles Spurgeon, he, he comments on this passage that I've been preaching, specifically this little illustration about Shiloh. Listen to what Spurgeon says. He says, you know how, Through the sin of Eli's son, God forsook Shiloh, and the tent of his house and the ark of his covenant were removed, and Shiloh became an utter desolation. This will God do to any church that becomes unfaithful to him. Go to Rome and see what she is today, the mother of harlots, though once she seemed chaste spouse of Christ, her idolatries are as many as those of the heathen, for she forsook the truth of God and turned aside from the Most High. Think not that God is tied to any place or to any ministry. If we walk not by before him aright, he may take the candlestick out of its place and he may take away the talent and give it to others and then Ichabod shall be written on the walls, whether it be Shiloh or Jerusalem, and let me just insert New Beginnings Baptist Church or Woodland Hills. He, he, Spurgeon mentions the, the, the early church being dead. If you think about the churches in Revelation, there were some powerhouse churches in the book of Revelation, right? Like these, Ephesus. Ephesus got some stuff done for the kingdom, Amen. But when, when John receives this word from the Lord, to the seven churches in Revelation, they were on a downhill slope. 
They were, they were straying away from the truth. They were straying away from their mission. The presence of God was slowly being removed. And, and I love this because he says in Revelation, he says, I, this is Jesus speaking, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Yeah, that's powerful. So what is the seven golden lampstands? They're the church. And Jesus is saying, I'm the, my presence is what makes you who you are. I, I walk among the seven golden lamps at the seven churches. But what does he say to them? There are some of you that are on the brink of death. Church in Laodicea was one of them, right? What does he say to the church at Laodicea? Behold, this is the one we don't remember with Laodicea because we misquote it for evangelism. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone would hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in and sup with him and he with me. You see, we've taken that verse and we've gone to evangelism and say, okay, God is wanting to knock on the heart's door, and that's fine to use it for that. I'm not saying you can't, but that's not the context. The problem with Laodicea is they were having church, but Jesus wasn't attending. Anytime Jesus is standing at the door and he's knocking, that means we're on the inside and he's on the outside, and that's never good. He's telling the church, you're having church without me, but if you'll open the door, I want to come back in. This is what we need. Now, very quickly, and we'll land this plane, have a time of response. I want you to flip back to Jeremiah 29, because this is where now we understand the context. Jeremiah 29, now listen to verse 11 in its context. The people in chapter 7 were being warned judgment's coming. Chapter 29, judgment came. What does that tell us? They didn't listen. And now the people of God are held captive by the enemy of God. And rather than the presence and the power of God making them distinct, now they are just like the other nations, slaves to the enemy. And then Jeremiah 29, 11, here's the word of the Lord. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, not to harm you, but to prosper you, to give you hope and a future. In other words, he is saying, I have brought you to the place of judgment and discipline because I want to restore you. I want to take you from ruins to revival. I want to take you from the place of brokenness to a place of repentance because in the posture of repentance that's when my presence returns to my people could it be that what we're seeing in our nation today and the church is closing their doors and the train wreck of marriages and the sin that is now creeping into the church and we're not even bashful we just change our doctrine to adapt to the culture could that just be the evidence that we are under the judgment of God? I mean, I just want you to think about the natural disasters that we've seen. You realize if you were to read the last two and a half years of what we've seen just in the state of Texas in, in, in regards to natural phenomenons, it would sound like we're reading something from the Old Testament. People froze to death two years ago because of winter storms in San Antonio. You ever heard of that before? It could be that God is trying to wake the church of Jesus up. And we need to respond. So how do we respond? I'm glad you asked. Verse 12. 
I saved the best for last. You're welcome. So what do we do? Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you and you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. You see, when we recognize that our sin has quenched the fire of God in our church, when the obstruction that has kept the airway of the church experiencing the wind of the Holy Spirit, when we recognize that and we turn, like my wife did, she gets up from the table and she looks at me desperate, not trying to fix herself. She needed me to intervene. This, when the church of Jesus Christ turns to God and go, we will die without you, that's when he steps in. We've got to return to him. I love this. We get desperate for him, and we pray, and we seek his face. You see, prayer and prayer meetings, and I'll talk about that as I close. Prayer and prayer meeting, listen, the purpose of prayer meetings in in a local church is not just for the sick to be healed or for even marriages to be restored. The purpose of prayer meeting is to find God and hang on to him. It is to seek his presence. This is why, listen, five times, this is the way he says, he talks about me and mine. He says, then you will call upon me and come to me and pray, and, you, and I will hear you, and you will seek me, and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Do you hear it? The presence of God was to be their great obsession, and whenever it was, look at verse 14. Here's the great promise. I love this. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. What is he saying? I'm going to restore the blessings of the covenant, my presence once again in your midst. If I seem a little passionate about this sermon, I want you to know that this message was a message that was birthed out of a very dark season. You see, this message was not written for you or for New Beginnings Baptist Church or for the Southern Baptist of Texas Convention. This was a message that I needed two years ago. In fact, I was thinking about that this morning. January 4th was the first Sunday of the new year in 21. And I'll never forget that Sunday. For six months, I had been in a depression, spiritual dark place, coming out of COVID and all the wars that we had to fight through those days. And I wanted to quit. I'll be honest with you. I was in such a dark place. I wanted to quit church, quit ministry, quit it all. For over a decade, I poured myself into New Beginnings Baptist Church, and she grew, and we reached lots of people, and I am so thankful that God has chosen to put his hand upon us for whatever reason. But as I looked at the church that I'd pastored for a decade, I didn't recognize her because I realized something about the church that I was pastoring And I recognized something about myself in that season. I recognized that the presence of God stopped moving in our church because the presence of God stopped moving in me. I had allowed ministry and talent and gifting to overshadow humility, brokenness, 
holiness. I had allowed innovation and trying to find new creative ways of doing ministry to become more important than being on my face before God and leading our people to do the same. And I realized in that season that God had stopped attending our church. And I went through about six months of not being able to put my finger on it with the clarity that I needed. And it was a series of events, and I can't go into all of it because I don't have time. I've already probably overshot my time anyway. I'll never forget, I was, after going through a season, I, all I knew, the Lord said, you're going to lead my people to pray once again. The problem is, is that y'all, you've, you've trusted in self. You've got to return to me. God had not even begun to deal with sin in my life to the extent that he needed to or he was going to eventually or even in our church. See, I love this because God invites us into his presence and then he begins to work things out. And i never forget January 4th, I'm sitting on the f- first row. I didn't, I didn't preach that Sunday. I didn't want to go to church that Sunday, but I kind of had to because, you know, being the pastor and all, you had to be there. And, um, and the, the, one of our staff members were preaching. He said, what are we preach on? I said, well, we're going to lead the people to pray. And I'm still in the darkest season I've ever been in. I mean, it was almost, I don't know if you've ever had this, pastors, where, where you just feel like you're in a fog. And you can't see up from down. And I'll never forget, I just knew God said, lead the people to pray. We're going to lead the people to pray. We started rearranging schedules so we could spend time in prayer, just seeking the presence of God. I didn't know exactly what that was going to look like, why we were going to do it, and, and even how to do it. And I'll never forget, January 4th, I told my, that pastor who was going to preach that Sunday, I said, preach on prayer. We're going to be doing a prayer meeting. Just preach on prayer. And that, that message changed my life. Because of all the places he preached on Jacob wrestling, with God until God broke his hip and for the first time in six months the spirit of God spoke to me not audibly but it was pretty close and here's what he said to me I've left you in this place of darkness because I needed to break your hip something about that story with Jacob I think that is interesting is that he walked with a limp the rest of his life He wrestled with God, and he prevailed. God blessed him. But he would walk with the limp the rest of his life, and this is what the Holy Spirit said to me. I have let you wrestle with me because I wanted to break your hip, and this is what he said, because I would rather you limp the rest of your ministry with me than run without me. We began to pray. We began to seek the presence of God, and and I'm telling you, I'm still in the process of God working all of this out of what it looks like to truly live a life that yearns for the revival, that yearns for to see the Spirit of God move. But I can tell you this, this message that I'm preaching to you, I want to make sure with humility I say this, this is still a work that Jesus is doing in me. And if the church in America is going to see the revival that we're praying for, we have got to get more honest with where we are. And I can tell you, I can tell you, I've lived in the season of life where the presence of God was not active. I never want to go back. So my heart and my passion is this next year as I'm leading our convention. One of the messages, this is the message of our year for me. I want to call the church to pray like never before. 
We need a divine intervention. And here is what, and listen, I want you to hear me say this. So here is what the Holy Spirit said to me as I was working through all of these things. God, I want to see revival. Remember I talked about the obstruction in the airway. Jesus said to me in that season, you are the obstruction that's keeping revival from coming to New Beginnings Baptist Church. I gotta deal with you first. We've been in a two-year journey. We have seen miracles. We have seen hundreds of salvations. We have seen God doing some incredible things. But I'm telling you this. Here is why. One explanation. We began to get on our face before God and say, God, we're calling on you until you answer. And as long as I get a chance to pastor, I pray this, and this is no joke, I pray that God will leave me in that position, leading congregations, leading people to pray. If not, take me home. Because I don't want to do ministry without him. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. And I want to lead us into a moment of prayer. And I'm going to ask, if we could, just to have someone play.